3: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. The Egyptian queen Cleopatra VII is one of the most famous women in history. But how many of the legends surrounding her are actually true? Well, in today's episode, we'll be exploring Cleopatra's life and legacy with Professor Joyce Tildesley, an Egyptologist based at the University of Manchester. Joyce has written the cover feature for the April issue of BBC History magazine, all about Cleopatra's connections to the Roman Empire. She spoke to the magazine's editor... Rob
4: Cleopatra is often described as the last pharaoh of Egypt. Do you think this is an accurate title of her?
3: It's not technically correct because she was a co-ruler with her son Caesarian and he actually outlived her by a few days. So technically, no, she's not the last pharaoh of Egypt. Um, But to all intents and purposes, she was because with her suicide in 30 BCE, that was really the end, I would say, of the dynastic period, because that's when Egypt becomes absorbed by... Well, it becomes absorbed by Octavian, actually. It becomes part of his personal holdings, but essentially it's absorbed by Rome, and everything changes at that point. To what extent was she connected to the pharaonic era? It depends how you define the pharaonic era. Um, If you define it as having a pharaoh on the throne, then she is definitely... A lot of people would cut off at the arrival of Alexander the Great. But when Alexander arrives in Egypt, he, to all intents and purposes, I and mean, he's not there very long, but he behaves as a traditional pharaoh. And We have images of him dressed as a traditional pharaoh, doing traditional pharaonic things. And the Egyptian people, they've always accepted that once someone is crowned king or pharaoh, and if they behave in the traditional way and they look like a traditional pharaoh, they are the pharaoh. So... This is probably a very astute move on Alexander's part to, to get the people of Egypt on his side, but he fulfills this need that they have that they do need a pharaoh because they need somebody who will connect them to the gods because only the pharaoh or the king can communicate properly with the gods and he's a sort of conduit between people and gods. So Alexander does that and other foreigners who've come to Egypt and ruled Egypt have done exactly the same thing. And when Alexander dies, there's a, there's a bit of a gap, but then his general Ptolemy takes over his role in Egypt. And again, he does exactly the same things. He's um, he's a, a Macedonian general, but within Egypt, in the traditional context, temples all the, up and down the Nile, he's depicted as a traditional pharaoh. And he looks like one and he acts like one. So I think Cleopatra would very much have seen herself as a pharaoh. Um, I think to us, maybe looking back on it, it's a different different type of pharaoh, but it is still a pharaoh of Egypt, I'd say.
4: And so Cleopatra comes down from this Ptolemaic dynasty. How unusual was it for a woman to rule or even be a co-ruler of Egypt at this point?
3: Looking at the dynastic age as a whole, it is unusual for a woman to rule Egypt. Um, it's quite clear that the normal progress is ideally father to son or father or to adopted son, or if necessary, someone will step forward. And it's nearly always male There have been some females who've ruled Egypt. Um, The most notable one, I would say, being Hatshepsut, who ruled for over 20 years. But it's rare. But when you get to the Ptolemies, it changes slightly. And they develop the the tradition of brother-sister marriage, which hasn't happened um, for some time in the dynastic royal family. And you get brothers and sisters ruling together. So it becomes less rare than it has been. You get these four full women who are ruling alongside men Cleopatra herself never actually rules alone she always has a co-ruler she's either with one of her brother she has two brothers and one one after the other and then her son Caesarean so she's not actually alone but because there's always a massive age gap I mean her her elder brother is still about 10 years younger than her and the, then she she is associated with and possibly marries a younger brother and then she's associated with Caesarean from being a baby so she's always the dominant ruler although technically maybe she shouldn't be but she was always going to be because obviously if you're co-ruling with a baby you're obviously going to be in charge of that baby and if you're that baby's mother you're um, even more likely to be in charge of things for quite some time I would say. Now the,
4: the story that you tell in the article you've written for the magazine is all about Cleopatra and Rome. What does the Roman Empire want from Egypt in the first century BC? What are their aspirations?
3: Egypt is a really, really fertile country, and I think that, that, that is, is the the nub of it. Um, they want the grain, the papyrus, the linen that, that comes from Egypt, and it's not a particularly well-defended country either, so they could either take Egypt or they could just trade with Egypt, um, and depending on how they feel about this. So Egypt is always going to be vulnerable but because of this, because it's very fertility. It, it sort of is a threat to Egypt. Um, and, and this, I think, is what the, the Ptolemies, towards the end of the Ptolemaic period, are really fighting against Rome's growing interest in Egypt. Because if Rome is growing armies and getting bigger and stronger, it's going to need to feed, feed people. And Egypt is very attractive to them for that point of view.
4: Now, Cleopatra famously became an ally and a lover of two important Romans in this era, the first one being Julius Caesar, how did she first form a relationship with him?
3: He, he came to Egypt um, chasing after Pompey the Great. He landed in Alexandria and then he summoned Cleopatra and her brother Ptolemy. She was ruling at the time with her brother Ptolemy. But relationships between the two weren't good. They were on the brink of civil war. Cleopatra had gone to Syria. She'd raised an army and she was marching back into Egypt. And her brother was already in Egypt and he, he seemed to have the stronger position. And Caesar wanted to sort this out. He wanted to make sure that Egypt remained stable and that possibly he could get repayment of the loans that Egypt owed to Rome back and to ensure us, presumably grain production and so on going on. So he decided to sort this out and he summoned both Cleopatra and her brother to Alexandria. And there's a very famous story about how Ptolemy, the brother, was able to make it quite easily because he was in control, but Cleopatra found it difficult to get to Alexandria because she would have to pass her brother's troops. And there's a story that she was rolled up in a carpet and smuggled into the palace and sort of unrolled at Julius Caesar's feet. And they fell instantly in love. Um, It's a really nice story. I'm not entirely sure that it's true, though. It it seems far more that the the meeting and their agreement together is a a diplomatic, I would say, decision. I mean, they do have apparently have a child together. So that suggests that it's more than a diplomatic liaison, but even this, is it makes a lot of sense from Cleopatra's point of view because she's looking for an ally. She wants somebody who will support her country and support her in her rule. And a very, very good way of doing that indeed would be to have a child by Julius Caesar because then that child would be protected by Caesar. That child's lands would presumably be protected by Caesar and there would even be an outside possibility that that child could take over Rome in the future. So yes, they're lovers. It might be that she even considered them to be married. We don't know. Certainly he couldn't because he was already married. They are lovers, but we we tend to see it as sort of her heart ruling her head, and I think it's very much her head ruling her heart. Very difficult to say, of course. I mean, I'm I'm guessing just as much as the people who think that she's overwhelmed with emotion are guessing. But it does seem to be a very sensible decision because this child will ensure that Caesar looks very favourably on Egypt for the future.
4: And then after Caesar's assassination, Cleopatra then teams up with Mark Antony, who is one of the rulers that replace Caesar. Do you think, again, this is more of a, a diplomatic strategic move on her part or do you think this one was a great love story?
3: I think it's another, again, diplomatic decision because she's teamed up with Julius Caesar and she couldn't possibly have realised that he was going to be assassinated. Um, so she's her, her ally is suddenly gone. She's unprotected again. She needs to repeat this. And she's really got a choice of two people. She's got either Octavian or Mark Antony. And she goes for Mark Antony in what seems to be quite a direct way. Um, She appeals to to him very much. Um, She obviously knows his character. He likes drinking and feasting and having a good time. And she appeals to all that side of his nature. And I do feel that it, it is, again, a repeat of what's happened before. It's worked for her before. So she's doing the same thing again. And I think if you had to make a choice at that time, you probably would choose Mark Antony because he was older and he seemed more successful and Octavian wasn't particularly brilliant at anything and was quite sickly. He might not even have survived. So she again was making a very sensible decision, but unfortunately it turned out that Octavian would have been the better bet. And whether she would have ever been able to attract him in the same way, I don't know, but she, I think she made the wrong choice it's it's interesting to speculate, I think, and of course, again, we will never know this, but had their plan succeeded, Mark Antony and Cleopatra, had they managed to establish an empire, an Eastern empire, how long would he have survived? Certainly by her side or just survived at all, I don't know. Interesting question. And so
4: then, as you've already alluded to, um, Rome is convulsed with civil war between Mark Antony and Octavian, How much is Cleopatra involved in Mark Antony's side of the conflict?
3: She supports him and she gives him financial aid. But I think she becomes more involved than she should be because Octavian uses her as the excuse to fight Mark Antony, I would say. Um, It's not good for a Roman to fight another Roman. And Mark Antony has got supporters. He's a respected person. He's he's not just someone who's popped up from nowhere. If it can be shown that... Octavian is very legitimately fighting a foreign enemy and that Mark Antony has misguidedly been entrapped and snared, caught in the coils of this foreign enemy, then it all makes a lot of sense and it can make Octavian's victory seem like a great one. Whereas if Octavian just um, fights Mark Antony, it looks less good. So really she gets sort of dragged into it. Um, It's hard to see why She is a great enemy of Rome. She hasn't done anything particularly wrong, but she becomes very useful to Octavian, I think.
4: And ultimately, how are Cleopatra and Mark Antony defeated by Octavian?
3: Well, there is a battle and it doesn't go at all well. And they they fight off the coast of Greece. I think maybe had they fought closer to Rome, maybe it might have gone better. I don't know. But the battle starts at Actium and within quite a short period of time, Cleopatra hoists her sails, which she's got on her boat, So she's always intended this to be a possibility and she flees the battle scene and Mark Antony follows her. And basically, that's the beginning of the end. They can't regroup. They don't have the resources. Their forces start to desert. Mark Antony tries to fight Octavian again in Egypt, but his troops desert and it doesn't go well. And within a year or so, they're dead. So that really is it. Maybe just a massive underestimation of Octavian's potential to win a battle.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: So we don't really know what she looked like. But if we keep portraying stunningly good-looking women as Cleopatra, it does again give the impression that that is how she succeeded.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate?
2: Visit BetterHelp.com slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.H.E.L.P.com/historyextra. slash History Extra. Hola. Hello,
0: this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to
4: what my phone can do.
0: Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer.
2: Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva.
0: Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend.
2: Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije.
0: You know what I said.
1: Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer.
4: Now, there's quite a famous legend about the death of Cleopatra. Do we have a good idea of what really happened at the end of her life?
3: No, no, we don't. Um, The legend is that she had a snake or snakes brought in from the countryside and hidden in um, a basket of figs. And she applied the snake to her arm and um, the poison killed her. But actually, that would be a really difficult way to die. There's there's no direct evidence for it. Having said that, of course, there's not a lot of direct evidence for much of her life. So that's not surprising. To persuade a, a snake to kill you in that way. Um, yes, you could get a bite. It might not kill you. And I think if you're going to commit suicide, you probably want to make sure that that it happens and the legend extends in some versions of the story. She also has maids with her who also use the snake bite. To get one good snake bite out of a snake would be pushing it to get two or three, would be even more difficult. There are other stories that she had poison that she kept in a comb on her person, so it was maybe that. And there are some people who believe that she was murdered, that Octavian actually murdered her because he didn't want her to survive, and that was the best way of dealing with it. Uh, so really, we don't know But the snake story, it's become very popular. It was very, very appropriate because the kings and queens of Egypt wore snakes on their heads. They had the, the uraeus, which is like a rearing snake. And so the snake, the Egyptian snake, connects Cleopatra with royalty, and it seemed a very appropriate way of dying for an Egyptian queen. And also Cleopatra thought that she was the living embodiment of the goddess Isis, and the goddess Isis could also be represented by a snake. So again, this snake theme, it seems very appropriately Egyptian. And soon you got everybody adding like snakes to statues of women to make them into Cleopatra, and once it had become firmly established, the snake is now kind of completely synonymous with Cleopatra, really. And
4: after Cleopatra's death, that's it, isn't it, for independent Egypt? From that point on, Egypt is then part of the Roman Empire. Yes. So how important do you think Cleopatra's life and death were to the establishment of the Roman Empire?
3: I think not so much the battle, because... That was a clear victory for Octavian. But I think her propaganda value was very important. Um, Octavian was able to use her to boost his own story. And he used her to say that he had come to power because he defeated this terrible enemy, this unnatural woman who was able to seduce good Roman men, who was able to tempt them away from their good Roman wives and... She sort of signified everything that the Roman male didn't like, being female and eastern and exotic and different. And he used her to really boost his own position. So from that point of view, I think very important. And we've talked
4: a lot about Cleopatra and Rome, but what kind of achievements did she have on the, I guess we'd call the domestic front? What did she do within Egypt itself?
3: It's really difficult for us to tell what was going on in Egypt at this time, because Cleopatra lived most of her life in Egypt, if not all of it, in Alexandria. And Alexandria was a modern, really new city at the the time, Um, very atypical. It's not like any other city in Egypt. Obviously, Alexandria is founded by Alexander the Great, so it's not old. It's um, built on a grid system and it's got a coast, a Mediterranean coast, so it connects Egypt to the Mediterranean world. The problem is that um, a lot of the areas where Cleopatra lived have now Disappeared under the Mediterranean Sea, so they've gone. And Alexandria today, modern Alexandria, is very much built up. So a lot of the archaeology of Alexandria has just vanished, either under the sea or under modern buildings. So we don't have a lot of evidence from Egypt about Cleopatra's life. We don't have anything like as much as we would like to do. We've got coins. We're not sure what she looked like, for example, apart from on her coins. And to work out exactly what was happening in Egypt during her reign is difficult. We can see that she did some building work. She finished off some temple building and and so on. We can tell, though, because when she came to the throne, her father was massively in debt to Roman moneylenders. He'd been borrowing money to bribe people to keep him on the throne. By the end of her reign, she is able to finance Mark Antony's campaigns. And One thing that the Ptolemies are extremely good at is raising taxes, and it seems that what she did was to tax the Egyptians heavily to pay for her lifestyle and like Antony as well. So, But certainly she seems to have been able to turn things around in Egypt. She didn't particularly start off popular with the people. I think that they were more on the side of her brother, the, the first brother, Ptolemy. Um, but by the end, she was popular. Um, obviously, that's because she, there's a, a more obvious enemy in Rome. So that, that will probably make her popular. But I think she was able to, with good governance, actually rule Egypt and and really turn it round. It's just that we don't have enough evidence to really tell us what was going on.
4: To what extent do you feel that the Roman view of Cleopatra has clouded her legacy ever since?
3: Oh, I think hugely. Nobody who wrote about Cleopatra... Really, really knew her. I mean, we have a few comments about people who met her in Rome, and they didn't particularly like her. They saw her as being behaving inappropriately with Julius Caesar, and so on. But the main accounts that we we rely on for Cleopatra come from Plutarch and Cassius Dio, people like that, and they are much later. They haven't met Cleopatra. They are writing based on legend already, and their accounts, which do follow the, the classic Roman line of this is a basically a bad woman or a misguided woman who was able to persuade Romans to follow her and who eventually died because of this. This has been very much absorbed into into the Western view of Cleopatra. If we look at Arab literature, and there isn't a great deal of this, and it's only recently started to be published in English, so it's been difficult for Western scholars to read this, but we can see that they have a different view of Cleopatra. They see her as more of um, a scientist and a sage, and a teacher and someone who writes books and so on. So whereas we focus on the relationships with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony and how wicked she was, they focus on on her being a very intellectual woman, which, which is good because it gives us a different view. I mean, presumably neither of them is accurate. The truth is presumably somewhere in between the two, but at least it shows us that we don't always have to regard her in the same way. And the story preserved by the Romans then sort of percolates into Western popular literature. She gets very much tangled up in people's imaginations with Eve from the Bible because of the snake connection. And then we get people like Chaucer including her in his book of Good Women. Um, He regards her as a good woman who died for love. And she sort of gets a bit transformed that way. So we get through to Shakespeare, who is, is drawing on all this Western tradition And I think a lot of what we today think about Cleopatra comes from Shakespeare rather than coming from the actual archaeological and historical sources that we do have. So I think it has a huge, huge importance. I don't know if she would ever recognise her own story. If she were to read Shakespeare, would she recognise that as herself? I don't know.
4: And how much do you think the accounts of ancient writers and more modern writers are shaped by her sex?
3: Very much so. That's what fascinates us, I think, by her. Well, if she was a bloke, she would have to do it in a different way. She wouldn't obviously be having children with Roman generals, and and that's, that's, that's a very easy thing to say. I think we would tend to see her as regarded working and thinking and acting in a more logical way. We've been very prone to see her as being illogical and being driven, I think, by her heart. She sees a Roman general, she falls in love with him, and so on, and everything follows from that. And I think we're doing her a massive disservice when we do that. She's an intelligent woman. She's making diplomatic alliances the best that she can do, and I don't think we should assume that she's any less capable of thinking than, than a man would have done, yet somehow we do. And we focus on things like her beauty or her lack of beauty, which really are fairly irrelevant to her story, I think.
4: Now, um, there's been actually quite a lot of discussion about Cleopatra recently in light of the upcoming film of her life, and in particular the casting of the Israeli actor Gal Gadot as Cleopatra. And this has then brought up a whole discussion about the ethnicity of Cleopatra. Do we know much about Cleopatra's ethnicity? Can we kind of settle this debate either way?
3: No, we can't. Um, what we do know is that the paternal line, her father, and we, we can trace him right back to Ptolemy I. And we know that Ptolemy I is Macedonian. So we know that there is Macedonian blood there. But we don't know who her mother is. We know that Ptolemy the twelfth, who was her father, was married to a woman called Cleopatra. This is where it gets really confusing because almost everybody was called Ptolemy or Cleopatra. But anyway, Cleopatra V, who was married to Ptolemy Twelfth? we know that she was the mother of our Cleopatra's eldest sister, but nobody mentioned who our Cleopatra's mother is. So can we assume that the children of, of Ptolemy XII have the same mother or not? Even if they do, we don't know who, who this Cleopatra V was so really, we're struggling. Yes, we we know that there's a good percentage of Macedonian blood in there. We know that the Macedonian royal family tended to marry each other. If they didn't marry their sister, they would marry cousins and so on. So a good percentage of Macedonian, but as we can't be certain who her mother is, we can't say what her ethnicity was, what she would look like. We just don't know. We could hazard a guess maybe that that these um, Hellenistic elite didn't necessarily mix with the Egyptians because Alessandria um, was a Hellenistic city but there's no reason why they couldn't have mixed with some Egyptians you know we, we just don't know at all so it makes it very difficult to say what her heritage would have been. And
4: so potentially a filmmaker could make the argument for casting quite a wide range of different women in this role.
3: Yes absolutely um, there's always going to be a Macedonian element, but apart from that, could be someone from anywhere in the Mediterranean area, I would say.
4: Okay, and, and actually on, on the subject of that film, um, I don't know, and I don't know whether you know much about how they're planning to project Cleopatra's life, but if it was up to you, what version of Cleopatra would you like to see on the screen?
3: You know what, I'd really like to see a Cleopatra who isn't stunningly good looking, because I think that it's um, it detracts away from her story, if you like, We can see her coins and she doesn't look particularly good looking to us. But having said that, of course, um, you wouldn't necessarily want to look stunningly good looking on your coins. You might be choosing to look fierce and stern and a force to be reckoned with. We don't have any real confirmed images of Cleopatra. We have a couple of her in a sort of Hellenistic style and we have a couple of Egyptian style. But certainly the Egyptian style ones are not portraits. They're very typical Egyptian women. And I'm guessing that the Hellenistic ones aren't portraits either. So we don't really know what she looked like. But if we keep portraying stunningly good-looking women as Cleopatra, it does again give the impression that that is how she succeeded. But even the classical authors, and again, I have to qualify by saying that they didn't meet her, said that she wasn't necessarily stunningly good-looking, but she was vivacious, attractive to talk to. And it would be nice if she was portrayed more as a normal political woman, a politician, I think rather than a great beauty.
0: That was Joyce Tilsley. Joyce is the author of numerous books about ancient Egypt, including a 2008 biography of Cleopatra. You can find a link to that in our show notes. And as I mentioned earlier, you can read Joyce's article on Cleopatra in the April issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes articles on Britain's greatest prime ministers, A Year in the Life of the British Empire and the Renaissance scoundrel Benvenuto Cellini. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow with everything you want to know about the Great Fire of London.